0: The uh, title of my message this morning for you is, Why Do You Love the Church? Think about it. If somebody asked you the question, why do you love the church, would you have an immediate answer? I I remember, so it wasn't long after my wife and I, Paula, were married, and we had already gotten in the rhythm of... uh, of what a couple does when they're dating and then when they're fiancés and then when they get married, which is, you know, you say, I love you. And it could be either one can start it, right? There's no rules about that. So either one can say, I love you, and the other one says, I love you back, right? So I love you, I love you. We had gotten all into a rhythm. We had done that hundreds of times. Uh, and, And then there was a record scratch one time early in our marriage because I said, I love you. And then she, instead of saying, I love you, she said, why? And I would encourage you to have an answer faster uh, than, uh, than what I had. I don't recommend you not having a snappy, good answer to that question, right? I wanted to say, can you just say, I love you, right? Well, don't break the system here, right? I, I know what we're doing. Just do what a normal person does. I say it, then you say it, right? So. As it relates to this text that we're going to look at in God's Word here this morning, what if you told me I love the church, and I said, why? Would you have a ready answer? Do you know why you love the church? And if God asked you the question, why do you love my church, would you have an answer to it. I want to give you three answers to the question. By the time we're done looking at this text in Psalm 100, I hope you're going to walk out of here saying, I got three answers why I love the church. And not just the church, the universal, faceless, awesome mass of people redeemed by Jesus all over planet earth right now. Uh, I mean your church, my, my church, the local church, the church where you gather and where you worship Jesus. I want to give you three answers From Psalm 100, if you look in God's Word with me, I'm going to read it to you. This is the Christian Standard Bible version. Psalm 100 reads this way. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Acknowledge or know that the Lord is God. He made us and we are His, His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and bless His name, for the Lord is good and His faithful love endures forever, His faithfulness through all generations. I I would submit to you, saints, here this morning that Psalm 100 is God answering the question, why do you love the church? This is God opening up the counsels of his divine mind so that we can understand why it is that God loves his people. This is the kind of community. When we look at Psalm 100, we're looking at the kind of community Jesus is building. When he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not what? Prevail against it. This is the kind of community Jesus meant to unleash on the world and the power of the Holy Spirit when he sent the Spirit down on his waiting disciples in the upper room. The kind of people Jesus meant to unleash are these kinds of people. And this is why God loves the church. Number one, if you're taking notes, number one, he loves the church because of the sound. The sound. So there's this call to worship right there in verse 1. In the older King James Version, it'll say something like, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness, right? So there's this sound of joyful noise that you can hear at every corner of the world. God is invoking the praise of the planet. It is an, an amazing start. I mean, this verse doesn't hold its big idea behind its back and give it to you at the end. It gives you the big idea right out of the gate. Make a joyful noise. Start singing to the Lord all the earth. It's a massive claim, but it doesn't just stay broad because in verse three. It's clearly the community of faith that's in view. You see there where it says, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God, but it goes on. So four brief observations I want to give you from the first two verses. Number one is this, the volume of worship is loud. (laughs) Make a joyful noise to the Lord, or as our text says in, in the version I was just singing, let the whole earth shout triumphantly, right? You can't, there are places where you can't shout. You can't shout in the library, you're supposed to use your inside voice in the library, apparently God doesn't want us singing like we're in the library he doesn't he He wants us not using our inside voice but our outside voice. The volume of worship is loud. growing up, how many of you were considered to be a loud child right That was me I remember my my mom used to say this phrase that didn't make any sense to me. She said, "Son, your voice carries and and I didn't know what that meant until years later, right and then I had our first son, Hunter, and then our second son, William, and Will's voice carries. I'm like, that's what my mom meant. This boy, like even when he's at a low ebb, when he's barely talking, you can hear him across the house, right? Just, there's that kind of sound. Psalm 100 speaks of the joy of the church as something that is audible, something that's even loud. You know, when you, if you hook up headphones to the book of Psalms, um, it's a loud book. There's, there's people clapping, singing, shouting, dancing, blowing horns and trumpets and crashing cymbals. It is, a, it is loud up in here, right? The, the worship of Israel in the Old Testament was legendary for its loudness. Shouts were raised, songs were sung, instruments were played, horns were blown. The noise of the temple was legendary. And there are kind of volume knobs right there in verse 1. I'll just read you a number of different translations of verse 1. King James, make a joyful noise to the Lord. New American Standard, shout joyfully to the Lord. Wycliffe translation, this is from the 1300s, sing ye heartily to God, right? That's the old school way of saying turn it up, church, right? That's that's way back there. Shout for joy to the Lord and shout triumphantly to God. In verse 1, don't Miss the point. In verse 1 of Psalm 100, God has his hand on the volume knob of the church, and he's cranking it to 10. He's he's saying, great is the Lord, and greatly, (laughs) greatly to be praised. there There are places in Scripture where we're not necessarily called at all times to be loud. For example, Psalm 46 says, Be still and know. That he is God. So it's not like there's this always we have to just be wall of sound from stem to stern, right? Everything in the church has to be super, super loud. No, there are moments where we come before Him reverently where Scripture says, let all the earth keep silent before Him and know that He is God, right? There's these reverence-charged moments where we put our hands over our mouths and say, we are in the presence of the awesome one. Sit in it and be still and know how awesome he is. There are places that talk about that. There are psalms that talk about that, but not this psalm. This psalm says there's also a time where it is fully appropriate and where it would be positively inappropriate for the church not to be loud and joyful and triumphant in its worship. So the volume of worship is loud. Second, the call to worship is global. Let the whole earth, it says in verse 1, make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth. So the call to worship is global. As the one true God, you just think about this theologically, okay? Right? So, as the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, God has the right to command the worship of every person on the planet. He doesn't have to ask, He can call for it. He can command the worship of all nations. By the way, not only can He command it, this is where history is going. It is going there, right? The the terminal moment in history as we know it, when the curtain comes down on history as we know it, what happens? All of creation stands in awe of God. All of creation recognizes the glory of Jesus Christ. What does Philippians 2 say? The one who was humbled is now exalted and at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. In the Greek, every means every. (laughs) Every knee will bow, will bow, not might bow, will bow, and let's just go through all the places where the knees will start bowing. In heaven, it says, and on earth, and under the earth. Satan himself will be on bended knee when Jesus breaks through the eastern skies. It will be the most reverence-charged moment in human history. And then there will be this, as we read in Revelation, this sea of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, your brothers and sisters in the faith. And what will we say? One will say, wow. Two will say, worthy. (laughs) Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. The, The Great Commission, you know, when Jesus is about to ascend and he gives instructions to his disciples, the apostles, and he says, go out, all authority is mine now. <laughs> in heaven and on earth, I've got all the authority, so go and make disciples of all the nations. The Great Commission, friends, is not wishful thinking. It's, there's not a hypothesis, there's not a question mark over whether the Great Commission will be fulfilled. The Old Testament cats called it in advance because God put a word in their ear. And what did they say? They said it this way. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Every corner of the world will see and recognize the glory of Jesus Christ. The call to worship is global. Next, the spirit of worship is joyful. All right, so you note that. You see that language there in your text. In verse 1, it's joyful noise, the English Standard Version says. It's not just serving And songs in verse 2, it's joyful songs and serving with gladness. So there's a lot of joy up in here just in the first two verses. We're not even out of the second verse before there's gladness, there's joy, there's noise, right? It's a triumphant sound. It's a joyful, glorious, glad sound. And even more so now where we're situated in redemptive history, right? They were looking forward, stretching in the direction of promises about the one who would come. We look back We've seen, as it were, the cross. We've seen the stone rolled away and Jesus, uh, the empty tomb, right? We see those realities in light of faith. They didn't even see that. that. That's why the dominant note of worship, both in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, is a note of joy it's a note of thankfulness. It's why, for example, we're told, if you've read the book of Hebrews, we're told in the book of Hebrews that we're supposed to come before a throne of grace, right? And how are we supposed to come to that throne? Halting? Not sure? No, come boldly, come confident before this throne of grace. Hebrews 12. Hebrews is an awesome book, right? And it's about The difference between the New Covenant worship and Old Covenant worship. Hebrews 12 announces that worship in light of the cross, what Jesus has done in His finished work on Calvary, worship in the New Testament feels different than worship in the Old Testament. It feels a lot different, Hebrews 12 says, than worship at the base of Mount Sinai. Don't take my word for it. Here's Hebrews chapter 12. The writer writes these words. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. This is a reference to Sinai. Those who heard it begged that not another word would be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the Sinai mountain, It must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. The worship leader himself, his knees were buckling at Sinai. I'm trembling with fear. Verse 22, instead, so by radical contrast, instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering. Now, I looked up synonyms for the word festive, and guess what they are? Joyful, jolly, merry, celebratory. It's a festive gathering that we join in. The angels are already gathered in festive gathering, and we, on Sunday mornings, we are connected to that same, as it were, Wi-Fi signal. We are connected to that same act of worship. You know how when you go to... uh, A restaurant, you can give an online review these days. Right? And so if you're about to go to a restaurant, you can look it up online and it says one and a half stars, and you're like, no, let's not go there. Like the food might be great, but maybe the service isn't or whatever, right? Because people leave reviews and they torch the place on their way out because it was a terrible situation, right? You can even leave online reviews of churches these days, right? And it's like it's like those words that I just read to you in Hebrews chapter 12 it's like it was an online review that somebody left. They attended worship at Sinai and they left this review so all the rest of us could read it. And here's what their review read. I'll just read it to you again. Blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and storm, words so heavy the people begged for them to stop. Some of you are like, I think I've attended that church. (laughs) I've actually, I've been 10 years ago, I was at that church, right? Maybe you've been there before, right? If the end note of gathered worship here at Living Word or at the church of Brook Hills, if the end note isn't good news, the gathering was a reenactment of worship at the wrong mountain. Worship has been done at Mount Sinai, and it was a gloomy event, it was a stormy event, it was a terrifying event, and Zion couldn't be more different. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Instead, you have come to Mount Zion the city of the living God, a festive gathering. There's a a playful Twitter account. It's a parody account, somebody kind of faking. They've got inside knowledge of kind of how church works sometimes, and they poke some fun. The name of the account is called Church Curmudgeon. And so it's playful, it's funny, it has some truth kind of injected into it as well. While it's playful and funny, it's got a little bit of truth in it. So Church Curmudgeon does fake church announcements, for example. Here's one. This was posted on Twitter by Church Curmudgeon. Quote, if you've lost your sense of smell due to COVID, you are encouraged to volunteer for our junior high ministry, right? He complains about the, uh, the style of music. If God can part the waters, why does the worship leader always need a bridge? Right? so he's just kind of <laughs> complaining about this and that, right? And his last po- Church Curmudgeon's last post almost every day is the same, and it's just three words. Good night, sinners. <laughs> There's a reason when I came up here this morning and every Sunday when I walk up onto the stage to preach God's word at the Church of Brook Hills that I don't say good morning, sinners. I say good morning, church. And that's purposeful. Paul even said good morning, church, to Corinth. I mean, if you're ever going to walk up and start a letter or a sermon to the church at Corinth, if you're ever going to use the phrase, good morning sinners, you're going to use it in Corinth. I mean, it was the Jerry Springer show out there, right? It was an absolute train wreck in Corinth. You read through the letter, there's all kinds of things he has to dial into and adjust and tweak and change and rebuke and admonish, right? But he says, Good morning, church. He says, "Grace to you in Corinth." And his last word in Corinth is also grace. So it's kind of this grace sandwich: grace at the front end and grace at the back end, with some exhortations, and in the middle. That's this letter, even to a broken church, a church that has sin. Why can Paul say, "Good morning, church," to a church even like that? Because sin doesn't have the last word. Our God is a redeemer. He has the ability to write redemption on the walls no matter how bad it was this week. We remind ourselves the gospel is true. We have a reason to be glad. We have a reason to sing and shout. Yes, we've sinned against a holy God. That's true. Guess what else is true? God has done something about it. He sent his son. For all who trust in Jesus, what has God done about it? Well, to borrow from the book of Psalms, as far as the east is from the west, So far has he removed our transgressions from us. Our sins, as we sing in one song at our church, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And not barely more. Abundantly, superabundantly more. God's rescuing mercy. If we get the gospel right, God's rescuing mercy is going to create a sound in the church, and the sound is gladness and joyful songs. Is that your sound? Is that the sound? Hear the volume of worship is loud. The call is global. The spirit is joyful. That's the sound. Second is the creed. God loves the church because of the sound of it. God loves the church because of the creed. The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible Version, reads in verse 3, acknowledge that the Lord is God. Acknowledge it carries the sense of recognizing something. Not just recognizing it kind of mentally assenting, checking a box. It has the idea of bring this on board. Like, pull this into the way you think. It's not just mentally nodding. It's bringing it all the way into your life, right? I love the older translations of this verse, though, where it just simply says this, Know that the Lord, He is God. Know that the Lord, He is God. Three truths right here in verse 3. Number one, He is God. He is God. You see how much, I love this, how much this passage focuses on God. God, I mean, it is God, him, Lord, his, he. It is all about God. All those his and hims and he's are pointing back to God, the Lord. So verse one, just look down, just let these words pop off the page. Verse one, to God. Verse two, serve the Lord. Verse two, come before him. Verse three, know the Lord, he made. Verse three repeats the possessive pronoun three times. We're his, we're his, we're his. Verse four, his gates, his courts, To Him, His name, verse 5, Lord is good, His faithful love, His faithfulness. It is all about God. God. Psalm 100 is enthralled with, fixated on God. The reason that we want our songs, our prayers, our sermons to be God-centered isn't because God-centeredness is trending right now. That's not the point, right? Right? The reason we want our songs to be filled with God and our prayers to be filled with God and our sermons to be filled with God is because God is the center of the universe. It's where he is. There is nothing more important than him. There's no one better to talk about this morning. (laughs) Why would we talk about me when we can talk about God? Why would we talk about you when we could talk about God? He's more important than all of us, and when He gets in His proper place, everything in our lives comes around. Everything orbits around Him, right? Gathered worship is a great reminder for you and for me that the universe doesn't orbit around me. How many of you needed to hear that this morning? (laughs) I'm the only one, maybe, who's going to raise my hand, right? It doesn't orbit around me. I'm not in control. I am not sovereign. I am not the one the world was waiting for. As the preacher J. Vernon McGee used to say, this is God's universe, and God does things His way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. (laughs) God runs the world. God runs the universe, and that is a really good thing. I don't want your hand on the steering wheel of history. There's only one hand I want on the steering wheel of history, and it's God's. And guess who's got the wheel? God does. (laughs) In all your transitions, look, I'm here this morning, kind of a bystander, watching in on all these transitions, and I just love Pastor Ben's work. God has his hand on the steering wheel. We don't have to be worried. We don't have to be anxious. God is God. I'm not. And in one way or another, I need to hear that every Sunday. It's therapy in a self-centered, self-enthralled World, I don't need another mirror. I need a window. My world is already filled with enough mirrors. Give me a window where I can see out, up and out, and be changed. But what I'm seeing there, he is God. Second, he made us. He made us. So the road of dependency in our relationship with God only travels in one direction. We need God. He doesn't need us. That's how it goes, right? He made us. We didn't make him. We didn't make ourselves. He made us. We exist because God graciously decided we would exist. You are breathing right now. Now and again and again because God keeps saying yes to your existence. If He stops, you go away. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. If He stops speaking your existence, you Vanish, we don 't make ourselves. God sustains us and created us. But this psalm, um, it's not just restating the obvious that God made the world and that he's the creator of everything and everyone in it. He goes on to clarify something more covenantal. God has, verse three, claimed a people for himself. He uses the imagery that y'all were using earlier on when you were reading from John chapter 10, the imagery of a sheep the imagery of a flock. That God has a flock. He has a people. He has sheep in His sheepfold. In the, in the Old Testament depictions of this metaphor, this language, that language fits the people of Israel. God had a flock. He led that flock out of Egypt, and He led them through the desert, right? And He fed that flock, and He water comes from the rocks, and He He waters his flock, right, so that they can drink and so that he can sustain them on the way to the promised land. He's leading his flock all throughout the Old Testament. Then Jesus shows up on the scene in John 10 and says, I am the good shepherd. Everybody who comes with me gets to live. Follow me and you will find life. And it says, the sheep hear his voice and they follow. It's the same language that's used here in this passage. It's God is a flock. He has a specific people, not just every person on the planet. He has a specific people people. He claims them as his own. And it's, it's not just as it was in the Old Testament. You know, so often when the language of flock is used, it's referring to Israel, a few stragglers here and there who come in from outside and proselytize and join the people of God. But that flock was never meant to be only Israel. From the very beginning, God had a plan that he would have a flock a people for himself comprised of, fast forward in the New Testament book of Revelation, Every tongue, tribe, and nation. It would be this multi ethnic community of redeemed sinners purchased by the blood of Christ. You and I, if we we're in Christ, are in his flock. The shepherd called and you came because his sheep hear his voice and they follow. That's such a precious truth to know that we are his. We are his. It says, his people, his sheep, you know that is a that is an increasingly controversial idea in our cultural moment right now because we are being trained kind of the the philosophy of our day, the spirit of our age, the secondhand smoke of the culture that we are inhaling all around us is you only belong to one person, you you call your own shots you. Construct your own truth. You define your own self, your gender. You're, you completely define yourself. Nobody can tell you which way to go. Nobody can tell you which truth is truth. You have your truth, I have my truth, right? That's the idea that's all around us at all times. And the sense that belonging is bad. Belonging to someone other than yourself is bad news. There's a, how many of you saw the movie Toy Story? All right, so in Toy Story, there's a toy named Woody, and the best thing that ever happened to Woody was one day he looked and he picked up his boot, and anybody know what was written in the bottom of his boot? Andy. That was the best day of Woody's life because he realized someone has claimed me. I belong to someone, and his name is Andy, and he's the best kid in the whole world, and he treasures me, and he's made me his own. He belongs to someone. There's someone who loves him. Psalm 100 says to you in Christ, there's someone who loves you, not based on the rise and fall of how well you did loving him this week. There's someone who has claimed you. He wrote his name on the bottom of your boot, right? He has claimed you as his own. This is glorious news. God's flock in the Old Testament was a wayward flock, and the New Testament churches weren't a whole lot better if we have an idealistic vision of what New Testament church was like and the purity, so-called purity of the early church, we have a gift that could bring us all the way back into reality, and that gift is 21 letters in the New Testament that show you how wayward God's people are, even there in the beginning, even with the Spirit. Right? It's just waywardness all over the pages of the New Testament. I love what Richard Sives, a writer a few centuries ago, wrote about the church. He said the church is compared to weak things to a dove amongst fowls to a vine amongst plants to sheep amongst the beasts ungodly spirits ignorant of god's ways and bringing his children to heaven censure that is rebuke or attack attack broken-hearted christians as miserable persons whereas god is doing a gracious good work in them I don't know what your experience is or how long you've been in the church, but sometimes in the church we can give the impression that as God's people, none of us is allowed to be weak. My brother years ago was working at a church and he was asked to lead the time of prayer. And he got out there and he led a time of prayer. and he was emotional because there were some really hard things that were going on in the life of that church, and it was just breaking his heart as he prayed and interceded for the people in the church. And he walks off, and the senior pastor of that church catches him in the green room and says, hey, no crying. You looked weak. Where do we get the idea that we can't be weak? Maybe if you were raised in Christianity, one of the first songs that you were taught is... They are weak, but he is strong. Lest we forget the nature of our relationship with God, it's this. You got good theology when you were a kid. We get to be weak. He gets to be strong. That's how this goes. That's how it's going to go tomorrow and the day after that. And 10 years from now, you get to be weak. He gets to be strong. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. It's glorious good news. And so when the gospel message about Jesus Christ and what he's done to save weak, sinful people, right? When that message gets into our bloodstream, not just so we can parrot it with our mouths, right? When it gets into our bloodstream, we don't shame the weak. Why? Because we're too busy confessing our own weaknesses. We're too busy joining them. Listen, our confidence every Sunday morning is not how perfectly we've loved God, but how faithfully He's loved us. Psalm 100 doesn't fill the world with mirrors. Psalm 100 says, look up and out. The gates are His. The courts are His. The songs are His. The earth is His. We are His. Gathered worship can be, if we're not careful, it can be an exercise in navel-gazing, right? Let's all circle up, let's all circle up, and let's look at the inner workings of our own hearts so that we can feel appropriately guilty about the things that we've been doing and the way that we've been living, and so that that guilt and shame might motivate us to do better this week. Friends, that's been tried once. It's called the Old Testament law. (laughs) And what kind of results did it produce? (laughs) It didn't cleanse the soul. The sacrifices and offerings. David, David even comes to that realization in Psalm 51. He says, you never wanted the sacrifices. You wanted a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's all you wanted from the beginning. That's what the church can be if we keep the good news front and center. I hope we don't leave every Sunday with the last word being, do more, do more, do more. Gather worship is not about what you are doing. It's about what Christ has done. I need to say that again. Gather worship is not about what you are doing. (laughs) It is about what Christ has done. So what do you do? What's the application point? Well, let's sing the gospel. Let's pray the gospel. Let's preach the gospel. Let's see it symbolized in the waters of baptism, down in death and up in resurrection life. Let's see it symbolized when we come to the table, right, Where, where we were not just given the, the news that you can cross the courtroom and move from the guilty side to the innocent side. No, it doesn't end in the courtroom. It ends in the house. It ends at the table. That's what the Lord's table says. Everyone who's in Christ, God meets us at the table. He says, here's bread and here's the cup. Remember how good it is in the family of God. That's what, that's what it tells, right? We do that week in and week out, and what's the effect that we're praying for? We pray that the Spirit takes that good news, takes that gospel, and converts the sinful and sanctifies the saints and turns prodigals back in his direction and empowers us for ministry in the world and comforts the afflicted. Truth is not, it's not just there you know, so, so that we can have our minds filled with ideas. Truth is experiential truth. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and it'll move the needle. You'll know the truth, and it'll set you free. (laughs) Know the Lord. Study His character as it's revealed in His Word. This gathering already, before I ever got up here, it was so filled with big God theology, right? Looms large in this place. That's so important. Why? Because the bigger God gets in your eyes, the more you're going to love Him. And the more you love him, the more you're going to want to trust him. And the more you trust him, the more you're going to want to obey him. Obedience is downstream of love. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. So how do we obey him more? Love him more. How do we love him more? We love him because he first loved us. So his love shines on us. Our love is reciprocated toward him. And obedience flows and springs out of a heart that's been transformed. That's how this works. It's not moralism. What's the church of people who the sound is joy, the creed is gospel, and third, the seeds. God loves the church because the sound, the creed, and the seeds. Verse 5, you see it there? For the Lord is good and His faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. You know, Jesus would use this language of how... The gospel's advance is something like seeds being sown. And believers are those who are just casting seed indiscriminately, just throwing and casting seed. We take the gospel to every nation. That's that's one of the implications of this truth, is we take the gospel to every nation. God wants this life of rejoicing that we see in this passage to affect the entire world. How do we know? It's where our psalm began. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. Commentator Derek Kidner says, verse 1, I love this, claims the world for God. (laughs) You think about missions. Missions is a joy project. Why do you say that? Because Romans chapter 10 is a compelling picture of missions. And it says, how lovely on the mountain are the feet of the one who brings good news. And it's talking about good news going to the ends of the earth, but it's giving you this picture of someone's feet, and it looks like happy feet. So in the ancient world, uh, you know, they didn't have Twitter, and they didn't have cell phones. And so if you sent the boys out to battle, you were unsure how the battle was faring, you would always look to the hills. The village, people in the village would look, the hills and a messenger would come up over the rise of that hill and they were too far for our for us to hear their voices so they would indicate by their own bodily bodily expressions how well it was going on the battlefield so if he came up over the rise of the hill and his shoulders were slumped and he was dragging his feet we all knew what that language means it means we lost today But if he came up over the rise and he was clicking his heels and he was dancing and he was shouting, even though we can't hear him shouting, we see the feet that are happy feet, right? And and so Paul uses that exact language in Romans chapter 10 to say, happy feet coming up over the rise is what the gospel is meant to do in the world. It announces there's good news. We won the battle. It's over. We inherit everything, right? That's the news of the gospel. Happy feet bringing good news to the nations. This passage finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Did you ever notice how Jesus' work, when he arrives incarnate, how his work is so connected to worship, and it's so connected to joyful worship, and it's so connected to joyful global worship? So, for example, at the birth of Jesus, an announcement rings out in the skies. Angels tell shepherds this. Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Joy for the world. Joy to the nations. The child has been born. Everything changes now. The king has arrived trust in him at his birth. And then wise men, they come from the nations, Gentiles. They come all the way to the manger, right, where the baby's born. And it says, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him, right? So some of the first things that happened in connection with the arrival of Jesus is the worship of the nations, Here they are, gathered around him, his infant throne, and they know what to do. They bend their knees. They bow before him. Keep moving forward. That child grows up. Jesus Christ, he meets a woman, Samaritan woman at a well in John chapter 4, and what are they going to talk about? Worship. She says, which mountain? Which mountain has the best Wi-Fi signal if we want to connect with God? Because for a long time, my people say, it's this mountain. A long time, your people say, it's that mountain. And what does Jesus say? Mountains, sh- mountains. It's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. Because the Father is looking, and a day is coming, and it now is. That the Father is seeking those who worship him, not on Gerizim and not on Jerusalem's mountain, but in spirit and in truth. Wherever they are in the good wide world, there's a Wi-Fi signal to heaven. Worship. And what does she do? It's so fascinating. What does she do? She turns around. She says, I'll be back in a minute. She runs into her city. She says, Come see a man. And the whole city comes with her, and Jesus connects it to missions. He tells his disciples, as the whole town is following this woman out toward him, and he says, Look, boys, the fields are white unto harvest. Here comes the harvest. Fast forward to Revelation. Chapter 7, after this I looked, there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Psalm 100's joyful noise in the final Analysis is sung in Revelation by every tribe, tongue, and people in the streets of the New Jerusalem. And you talk about a place that will rumble and radiate with joy. There will be dancing in the streets. All pain gone. All anxiety, stress, sin expunged from the world. Will you be there? Have you put your trust in the one Savior and one hope of the world? Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned in your God substitutes and put your trust in Christ and Him alone? And you will be there on that day. This is why mission matters. Paul says, as it were, how are they going to sing if they never heard about Him? How will they join? How will they believe? How will they have faith if no one tells them? So we take the gospel to every nation. We transfer the gospel to every generation. It's not just every nation; it's every generation. His faithfulness through all generations. God wants to take this truth and make Christians so secure and so courageous and so confident in God's grace. In our um, in our Brook Hills Kids Ministry back at our church in Birmingham there's this five-year scripture memory program that's in place to kind of give children and put truths into their hearts and minds and to unpack it for them and help them understand what this teaches you about God and about yourself and about salvation, about the world and all the rest, right? So there's very intentionally chosen verses and passages in the Bible. When we first moved to Birmingham to join uh, the church there, Brook Hills, our daughter Ellie, she's our youngest, she was seven years old, and so she comes home with homework, and the homework is, Dad, we've got to memorize these verses. And the one for this week is Psalm 139, verse 9 and 10. And so to help her memorize it and to help me memorize it, I set it to music. It was not like a, for public consumption. It was a cheesy song. Uh, but we just say, hey, let's create a music, a melody line that we can slap our legs and sing these truths. And so here's the song that we would just sing it together. Where shall I go from your spirit? And where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And we'd sing that song and we'd slap our knees and we'd cut up and have a great time. Yeah. And we'd modulate it and sing it higher and higher. And then I can't go any higher. And she just keeps going up and up and up, a seven-year-old voice. And we had a joy and a time, right? And all the while I knew there's going to come a day when she's not going to be seven. There's going to come a day she's not going to be seven and she's going to grow up and there might be days in her life when she feels like God is a million miles away. And all hell is breaking loose and the enemy's throwing everything he can at her life. And on that day, and this was the goal and the agenda and the prayer from the beginning, is for her and for all the kids that God has sent out and raised up at our church, the hope is that when that day comes in her life and other kids' lives, when that trial comes barreling into her life, Ellie's going to reach down and Psalm 139 is going to be there. And she's going to wrap her hand of faith around that truth and pull it out, and it's going to rescue her. The truth is going to hold her steady. It might not stop the storm, but it's going to hold her steady. When a cynical culture hears the word church, all kinds of things come to mind. If you play free association, you ever play the free association game where I say bat, and you have to say the first thing that comes to mind, ball or vampire or whatever it is, you're going different directions. If you say, hey, world, let's play free association. I say church, you say. What does a world say? A cynical world says uh, lame, boring, irrelevant, bigoted, rules, religion. And now end that game, and now let's play free association with God. And we say, God, I'll say a word and you tell me what you think. I say church, you say what? And he says, you say church, I say gladness, joyful, songs, thanksgiving, creeds, truth, nations worshiping, children and their children's children knowing my faithfulness. You got three Awesome reasons to love your local church. The sound, the creeds, and the seed. My friend Ray Ortland is a Christian author and he pastored an amazing church in Nashville. And every Sunday at the beginning of worship, he would stand at the front of their stage and he would open with good news. On their way in, before any notes were sung, he would say these words every Sunday. And I think they capture the gospel spirit of Psalm 100. He would hold out his arms and and say these words to the church gathered. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, the justifier of those who have no excuses left. When you say, I love the church, and God says, why? Say this, I love the sound. I love the sound of my brothers and my sisters singing truth into my ears. I love the creeds. I love that we read the truth from God's Word and it's preached to us unashamedly. I love the truth. And I love the seeds. I love knowing it's not going to stop with us. It's going to ride on to the ends of the earth and it's going to ride on from generation to generation. I love the joy of the worship of God's people. I love the faith once for all delivered to the saints, which we confess. I love knowing that the kingdom is a harvest and what we're doing this morning will affect nations and generations. (laughs) Living Word Church, keep sowing. And here's your motivation. You keep sowing, market, The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. And you might say, I thought the waters were the sea. Exactly. God's glory will radiate through the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth. That's where it's going, and now we live in light of that. Amen.